1: this is
2: the tom hartman program
3: and greetings my friends patriots lovers of democracy truth and justice believers in peace freedom and the american way tom Hartman here with you live from washington dc today as we're on book tour with the hidden history of guns and the second amendment more graft and corruption coming out of the trump kushner families surprise surprise it's just incredible But right now on the line with us is Professor Lawrence Tribe. He's the Carl M. Loeb University professor and professor of constitutional law at Harvard Law School. His latest book is To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment. And you can tweet him at Tribe Law. Professor Tribe, welcome to the program.
4: Good to be with you, Tom.
3: Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in which you suggested that impeachment doesn't necessarily have to mean removal from office. Can can you explain that?
4: Sure. Well, that part is actually not not new. Impeachment is the process by which the House of Representatives decides whether the president should be charged with high crimes and misdemeanors and in the usual sequence of things, that goes over to the Senate for trial. The Senate, however, has become something of a graveyard these days. And McConnell, who is the leader of the Senate, prides himself on what he calls himself, I guess, the Grim Reaper. And a lot of people, including, I think, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, are concerned about starting up an impeachment process that is aimed for the graveyard. And in my op-ed, I explain that although impeachment usually is the first of two huge steps the second of them being a trial in the senate the impeachment process in the house of representatives has sometimes been its own reward it sometimes led to findings of guilt essentially a verdict of high crimes and misdemeanors that's what happened to richard nixon he then resigned of course before anything could have happened in the senate It's something that the House of Representatives is perfectly capable of doing. And so what I urge is that the House immediately begin an impeachment inquiry, hear from witnesses of the sort that are going to be much easier to compel to testify if it's an impeachment proceeding. Uh, Witnesses like Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, his top aide, Danny McDonald, uh, Hope Hicks, who was there, by the president's side while many of these decisions were being taken. Those people will have no way to resist even judicial compulsion to testify in an impeachment inquiry. In the meantime, the president and his defense lawyers can be given a full opportunity to respond. Nixon was given that opportunity. He passed it up, but he did send a lawyer to represent him in the House, James St. Clair. We should do that with this president so that he can't claim that he was railroaded, that it was just another witch hunt. He'll have a full chance to present his defense, and then the House of Representatives should reach its conclusions. Has he committed high crimes and misdemeanors? I think the answer is almost certainly going to be yes, but they shouldn't answer the question before they have the hearing. And are those high crimes and misdemeanors so dangerous to the country? that he should be out of there as soon as possible and again i think the answer is yes but at the last minute the house can decide which way to go does it hand the impeachment articles as such to the senate or if the senate's mind is so closed that it hasn't been moved by the hearings and the public attention to the televised day-by-day drip-by-drip exposures of corruption and criminality might the House simply decide to wrap it up and itself call these not articles of impeachment, but, for example, um, conclusions of high crimes and misdemeanors, or findings of conduct unbecoming the commander-in-chief of the United States, something that will get the public so like resolution stamp the president's forehead with a scarlet eye for impeachable, and then you'll have a much harder so, time getting so- reelected. So that would be basically like a resolution of yeah, sorts. it would a be formally a, a resolution of the House, a sense of the House resolution. But a lot of people sort of poo-poo resolutions as though they're not going to make a difference. A resolution that comes at the end of a nationally televised public almost trial, and that is appropriately labeled and names make a difference. That kind of resolution would be a huge albatross around this president's already rather thick neck as he goes into re-election.
3: I'm curious how we define an impeachment inquiry. Is there some magic set of words that I know? I know, for example, the Constitution says that the president's power of pardon is limited during an impeachment? It says that he can't pardon himself to get out of an impeachment. Oh, so it doesn't mean that he can't pardon, for example, Paul Manafort. While While he's he's being being impeached, he he can pardon anybody in the world.
4: But the abuse of the pardon power could be yet another impeachable offense. That is, the fact that a president is undergoing impeachment doesn't mean that he loses the veto power, the pardon power, any of his powers. But what happens is that the House gains power. It gets the ability to overcome grand jury secrecy of the kind that we've heard so much about. It gains the ability to compel testimony. No court would refuse to grant an order to hear from the president's White House counsel once the thing is called an, impeachable, uh, an impeachment inquiry. And you ask, are there magic words? Yes, impeachment inquiry. Those are the two magic words.
3: So the Judiciary Committee would convene itself, not a subcommittee of the committee, but it would it would simply convene hearings, and they would formally right. call but, it an impeachment. and Jerry Nadler doesn't have the power to
4: give it that name all by himself. It takes the Speaker of the House, it takes a resolution of the House, to empower the Judiciary Committee or any other committee to conduct an impeachment inquiry looking to the possible impeachment and removal of a high officer of the United States here, it would be the president. It would take a a formal step, a step that as soon as Nancy Pelosi gives the green light, that step would be taken. And what I'm trying to do with the proposal that I've made in my op-ed is to remind the Speaker of constitutional options that she may not have recognized were on the table. Various people are talking to her about it today.
3: So, looking at the willingness to engage in, at the very least, unorthodox and arguably criminal behavior by this administration, let's say that the House Judiciary Committee convenes an quote impeachment inquiry, and they subpoena Bill Barr, and they and they ask the Justice Department to turn over to them the grand jury testimony. And Bill Barr simply says no, and then they hold a contempt hearing and they hold him well, in contempt, the sequence, and then they go to a Tom, court. Tom, the sequence
4: would be different. They
3: would. Probably go to a court
4: and ask a court to order Barr to take certain steps, like reveal certain things or unredact certain things. That a court would almost certainly order. And if he defies the order. Well, what if of he court?
3: ignores the court order? Well,
4: you know, the Justice Department even now is ignoring temporarily a court order by Judge Sullivan, uh, which he issued last Friday, I think it was, ordering the release of the transcripts of rather dubious conversations that were held between michael flynn and ambassador kislyak they're not going to get away with that for long a court would hold yeah. someone like that in contempt put them in jail if it had to we're going to come to a point where there is just so many times that the administration can
3: try to just say no
2: you're listening to tom hartman
3: So I'm in D.C. today, and boy does that ever suck! I'm getting a headache just from being in this town, surrounded by all these crazed politicians, and the Trump Hotel down the street, and oh. But <laughs> you know, that's that's what I would like some good old-fashioned CBD oil, and the best I can, the best I've been able to find anywhere in the country is some New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals—they make it out of hemp rather than marijuana, so it doesn't get you high but it does deal with pain and inflammation really effectively it's non-toxic it's not intoxicating uh... you get the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind altering properties of medical marijuana and New Leaf Naturals, nuleafnaturals.com, makes the highest quality CBD oil on the market. 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's nuleafnaturals.com and get 30% off and free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code tom It's spelled T-H-O-M. That's nuleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NewleafNaturals.com, and only one code that gets you 30% off in free shipping. That's Tom, T H O M, at NewleafNaturals.com. Welcome back. Professor Lawrence Tribe is on the line with us, professor of constitutional law at Harvard Law School. His uh, most recent book, To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment. His Twitter handle is Tribe Law. So, my question is, If a dozen courts all said to the Justice Department, you have to arrest Bill Barr because he's in contempt of Congress, and every single time Bill Barr says, I'm not going to arrest myself, what do we do?
4: Well, there are U.S. Marshals. There are other possibilities. We've never as a country come to the point where an executive branch has simply defied a court order. Um, There are legends that Andrew Jackson threatened to defy the orders of John Marshall, he said, you know, John Marshall, uh, let him enforce his order, where's his army? Uh, That would be a genuine constitutional crisis. I think at that point, even the supine Senate would decide that they had to go along with an impeachment that would actually lead to a conviction and a removal of the president. Now, you can get, you know, science fiction scenarios. What if the president refused to leave after he were removed by the Senate? Senate has never actually voted to remove a president. We've never had a president as bizarre and dictatorial as this one. Uh, I really don't have the kind of crystal ball that would tell me where would the army line up, but we would then genuinely be in the situation of a banana republic. We would be in a crisis.
3: The Justice Department, Bill Barr's branch of the executive branch, is in defiance of specific court orders. If that continues and the president's just in defiance. And even if that goes to the Senate and the Senate says, okay, all right, you know, or or like, you know, Barry Goldwater going over to the White House and telling Richard Nixon, you know, we are going to convict you, you should resign. And Trump says, no. I mean, it sounds like you said, science fiction, except that this is essentially what has happened. This is what happened in Germany, Italy, and and Spain in the thirties. This is what has happened more recently in a number of other countries uh... you know around the world that have have flipped more or less authoritarian um, do you think that there's any possibility that it could get that bizarre with donald trump in the white house and bill Barr in the justice department and if so what are the remedies well there's nothing that, the end of the beyond,
4: beyond imagination with this bizarre bizarre president he's really unprecedented and i do think it's conceivable That he would simply say, the army would have to drag me out of here. And then maybe the army would. I mean, he is the commander-in-chief, but at that point we would be in a crisis of a sort we really haven't had. Even during the Civil War, Lincoln remained at the head of the Union. Um, And there was a civil war. Some people have threatened that if this guy is removed, there will be another civil war. Some of the ones making that threat are, are crazy. Others, however, are maybe crazy like foxes, and they're well-armed. I really don't, you know, I don't have any answer for what would happen then, but I'm desperately hopeful that we can avoid it. We can avoid it because there may be limits, although we have yet to see them, beyond which even this bizarre president will not go.
3: Yeah. Or another possible scenario would be Trump gets impeached in the House, he gets convicted in the Senate, he quote leaves office. Uh, Mike Pence immediately pardons him and makes him a senior advisor to the president, and Trump continues to stay in the White House and tweet and basically run the th- run the place. Is that that is, is that, that, is that is even conceivable a
4: possibility? That, that's in fact one of the most plausible scenarios. Suppose that Trump is badly defeated in November of 2020. I don't by any means assume that'll happen, but suppose he is. Certainly, at the very least, because he has committed so many crimes that could be prosecuted federally as well as in the state courts, he would resign just before the new president took office, and he would arrange to have been given a pardon by the new president for a day, Michael Pence. But he could still then be prosecuted by state courts, and he's committed, I think, a lot of, A lot of things that are violations of New York criminal law, and there's no way that the power of the pardon, the president's power of the pardon, can wave a magic wand and keep this guy from being prosecuted by the state of New York and by
3: other states. Any thoughts on how we can minimize or mitigate the damage that has already been done, frankly, and going forward that any of these scenarios might bring about?
4: Well, I think the most important single thing, and if any of your readers have ways of reaching mem- you know, their congressional representatives who can then speak to Nancy Pelosi, the most important single thing is to begin a process of dramatic public education that can occur only if we really start a genuine impeachment inquiry. If the nation rises up in full awareness... Of the corrupt criminality that is really not doing anything for the American people, but is selling us out to foreign adversaries. If the nation wakes up, then with a single voice, the government of the United States can drum Trump out of office. His ability to resist well, a this, nation this, without you know, traditions is going to be limited if there is a massive public outcry.
3: During the Nixon impeachment inquiry, when it started, I'm doing this from memory, but my recollection was that the support for impeachment at the beginning of it, and, and at that point some of the crimes were known, uh, was around 17 or 19 percent, and six months later, after all these hearings had been held, public support was, well, 67 percent, as I recall, and, and you know, at that point, then it's either he goes along or he provokes a civil war, it seems. But, you know, things are so
4: different from what they were in the Nixon era. There was no Fox News. There was no, you know, yeah. there were no social media platforms. People really did get their news from common sources, and there was less distrust of factual information. We live in a different time when a lot of people just will not open their eyes and see what is staring at staring at them remember when the president said don't believe what you see or what you hear it's not really happening it's, what's happening is what i say is happening right. i mean that that's that's the end of truth and the end of truth spells the end of democracy so we may not be as lucky as they were in the nixon period
3: yeah it seems to me that just that statement in and of itself would qualify as a high crime or misdemeanor
4: no no the president can blather all he wants terrible as that is, but statements like, don't believe anyone but me, are disgusting, but they are not high crimes and misdemeanors. You really need conduct that threatens the country. I think it would be, one of the things that I argue in my book is that going overboard and calling everything that you find disgusting a high crime and misdemeanor is itself also a prescription for ending democracy.
3: Yeah, yeah, you're right, And, and hyperbole has a way of backfiring. Right. Professor Lawrence Tribe, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. His new book, To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment. Tweet him at Tribe Law, professor of constitutional law at the Harvard Law School. Sir, thank you so much for talking Thank by. you, Tom. Great talking to you. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading from the Mueller report. This is page 66. The subtitle is Russian Government Links to and Contacts with the Trump Campaign. The office identified multiple contacts, links, in the words of the appointment order, between Trump campaign officials and individuals with ties to the Russian government. The office investigated whether those contacts constituted a third avenue of attempted Russian interference with or influence on the 2016 presidential election. In particular, the investigation examined whether these contacts involved or resulted in coordination or a conspiracy with the Trump campaign in Russia, including with respect to Russia providing assistance to the Trump campaign in exchange for any sort of favorable treatment in the future. Based on the available information, the investigation did not establish such coordination. This section describes the principal links between the Trump campaign and individuals with ties to the Russian government, including some contacts with campaign officials or associates that have been publicly reported to involve Russian contacts. Each subsection begins with an overview of the Russian contact at issue, and then describes in detail the relevant facts, which are generally presented in chronological order, beginning with the early months of the campaign and extending through the post-election transition period. A. Campaign period, September 2015 to November 8, 2016. Russian government-connected individuals and media entities began showing interest in Trump's campaign in the months after he announced his candidacy in June 2015. Because Trump's status as a public figure at the time was attributed in large part to his prior business and entertainment dealings, his office investigated whether a business contact with Russia-linked individuals and entities during the campaign period, the Trump Tower Moscow project, led to or involved coordination of election assistance. Outreach from individuals with ties to Russia continued in the spring and summer of 2016, when Trump was moving forward and eventually becoming the Republican nominee for president. As set forth below, the office also evaluated a series of links during this period, outreach to two of Trump's then-recently-named foreign policy advisors, including a representative that Russia had, quote, dirt on Clinton in the form of thousands of emails, dealings with a D.C.-based think tank that specializes in Russia and has connections with its government, a meeting at Trump Tower between the campaign and a Russian lawyer promising dirt on candidate Clinton that was part of Russia and its government's support for Trump, events at the Republican National Convention, post-convention contacts between Trump campaign officials and Russia's ambassador to the United States, and contacts through campaign chairman Paul Manafort, who had previously worked for a Russian oligarch and a pro-Russian political party in Ukraine. 1. Trump Tower Moscow Project. This is page 67 now. The Trump Organization has pursued and completed projects outside the United States as part of its real estate portfolio. Some projects have involved the acquisition and ownership through subsidiary corporate structures of property. In other cases, the Trump Organization has executed licensing deals with real estate developers and management companies, often local to the country where the project was located. Between at least 2013 and 2016, the Trump Organization explored a similar licensing deal in Russia, involving the construction of a Trump-branded property in Moscow. The project, commonly referred to as a Trump Tower Moscow or Trump Moscow project, anticipated a combination of commercial, hotel, and residential properties all within the same building. Between 2013 and June of 2016, several employees of the Trump Organization, including then-president of the organization Donald J. Trump, pursued a Moscow deal with several Russian counterparties. From the fall of 2015 until the middle of 2016, Michael Cohen spearheaded the Trump Organization's pursuit of a Trump Tower Moscow project, including by reporting on the project's status to candidate Trump and other executives in the Trump Organization. A Trump Tower Moscow venture with the Crocus Group 2013 to 2014. The Trump Organization and the Crocus Group, a Russian real estate conglomerate owned and controlled by Aras Agalarov, began discussing a Russian-based real estate project shortly after the conclusion of the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Moscow. Donald J. Trump Jr. served as the primary negotiator on behalf of the Trump Organization Emin Aguilarov, the son of Eris Agalarov, and I- Irakli Ike Kavelazid represented the Crocus group during negotiations with the occasional assistance of Robert Goldstone. In December 2013, Kaveleze and Trump Jr. negotiated and signed preliminary terms of an agreement for the Trump Tower Moscow project. On December 23, 2013, after discussions with Donald J. Trump, The Trump Organization agreed to accept an arrangement whereby the organization received a flat 3.5% commission on all sales with no licensing fees or incentives. The parties negotiated a letter of intent during January and February of 2014. From January 2014 through November 2014, the Trump Organization and the Crocus Group discussed development plans for the Moscow project. Sometime before January 24, 2014, the Crocus Group sent the Trump Organization a proposal for an 800-unit, 194-meter building to be constructed at an Agalarov-owned site in Moscow called Crocus City, which had also been the site of the Miss Universe pageant. In February 2014, Ivanka Trump met with Emin Agalarov and toured the Crocus site during a visit to Moscow. From March 2014 through July 2014, the groups discussed design standards and other architectural elements. It's the Mueller Report. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets in real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call one own gold That's one 888 You're listening to Tom Hartman. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us. He's the congressman who represents the 17th District of California. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. His website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep, as in representative, Rep, Ro, R-O, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A, Rep, Ro Khanna. And, uh, Congressman, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's been a while since we've talked. If there's anything that you think people might need to know about or do or whatever.
5: Well, the uh, defense budget is going to be authorized as we speak this week. And so I have been involved in efforts to try to make sure there's no funding for any escalation in Iran. We're still involved in uh, amendments to defund any of the Saudi efforts in Yemen. I want to introduce an amendment on the floor to at least freeze defense spending. I mean, we can't even get an agreement to freeze it at Trump levels. So a lot of the work, uh, this week, we'll be focused on armed services, which I sit on, and making sure we're not funding
3: any future war efforts. Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, Congressman Khanna, good
4: morning, sir. Listen, uh,
2: please don't believe that myth that a sitting president cannot be indicted. Spiro T. Agnew was about to be indicted. So he stepped down. The same protocol that goes for a president goes for a vice president. So he stepped down. They put Gerald Ford in there. Mr. Uh, Nixon stepped down, and Mr. Ford pardoned him. At that time, I was in college wearing a roast clip saying, impeach Nixon. Please do not believe that myth. You guys got more power. I, I've been to the library. I used to work in the library. You guys got more power than you can imagine. Please, sir, go ahead and start using it. And by the way, Congressman, did you get that book from uh, the congressman that I sent you uh, by Max Mendoza Goliath?
5: First of all, I appreciate the call. And the spiral agony analogy is actually a good one. I'll I'll have my uh, team look into that because you are right that they uh, were going to press uh, charges, as I remember, uh, against the vice president. Uh, But we are moving. I mean, this week in Congress, uh, we're going to have a vote to hold uh, Bill Barr in contempt. We're moving to the courts to make sure that we get the underlying evidence of the uh, Mueller Mueller report, which we need. Uh, there are aggressively six investigations going on. So uh, I think uh, many people will be pleased with the progress we make uh, this week in Congress.
3: Joe, in Cupertino, California, you're on the air with your congressman, I think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> good morning, Tom, and uh, good morning, Congressman. Um, good morning, I'm very Joe. impressed. I can say we had a lot of people out at uh, the Bernie Sanders thing here in San Jose, and uh, at any rate, I was uh, alive during the 73s, and I remember the impeachment hearings and the television. I, mean, I think we had like three television channels, and it was all in black and white. But the nation was focused on every word. Today, though, I think it's really hard to suggest you're going to get the attention of the American people in that fashion. Although I've been listening to Tom reading me the Mueller report here, and I think I'm on page like 80 or something like that. It's going real slow, but I'm looking forward to the conclusion. That being said... The nation's attention has got to be focused on, you know, something. And I think we have the calendar working against us. The election is coming in 18 months. I want to make sure this doesn't become a national distraction, but I do believe that right makes might and that, and we've been in HR one. We voted for a lot of things in the House, but we need to proceed because it's the right thing to do. Nothing's going to get passed. That's out of our control in the House, but we still need to proceed. So I'm asking you to please continue your efforts to hold this president accountable under any means possible. Um, but you, I do understand Nancy's position. I can count. So can she. We may not be able to get the House or the, the Senate to approve this, but uh, I think the professor that Tom brought on in this resolution might be. a in the right direction Um, my question to you is the august recess is fastly it's approaching and if we don't make that decision to decide whether to proceed with impeachment or to proceed as i'm hoping we will proceed to get bernie sanders elected we need to decide what to do and you're my representative so i'm taking direction from you and lastly i wish you would speak to the house uh to have president trump reeves store the funding taken from the Interior Department to fully fund their fire suppression services on federal lands. Fire season's approaching, and he's taking the personnel out of the fire, uh, the Interior Department to pay for this border wall at a time when California's going to be on fire here in about three or four weeks, if not tomorrow. What do you think?
5: Well, Joe, I appreciate those points. First, on your point on the funding, Uh, You're absolutely right. We need to be funding the Interior Department. We need to be funding our Forestry Service fully, uh, and uh, House Democrats are working on that, on the appropriations process. We're not going to allow him uh, to have cuts. We're not going to allow him to have cuts to NIH and many of the other productive agencies that he wants, and I uh, think the House Democrats will prevail on our uh, priorities. In in terms of... um, how we move next in the timetable. Uh, I I agree with you. It's got to happen this year before the election year. Uh, I I do think uh, we need to continue to make the case because, uh, you know, I have tremendous admiration for uh, Lawrence Tribe. I have read his book on impeachment, but he doesn't have to count the votes. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, before she can bring something to the the House floor, has to know it can get 218 votes, and we're not uh, there yet. I mean, you have 60 people or so who are formally come out for impeachment, and then you have probably 100 or so more who would vote for it. But there are about 55 Democrats who have said they won't. And uh, how to change that opinion is uh, through holding hearings, through having Mueller testify, through having greater public attention. uh, And I think that's what we're doing in terms of aggressively building the case.
3: Mick, in Santa Cruz, California, you're on the air with Congressman Connor
1: good morning Uh, thank you both for your service and uh, taking my call mike my uh your opening comment was about the defense spending and my question to you is uh is any of that money uh, slated to go towards the national guard that's going to try to keep the immigrants in check and uh my purpose for calling was to ask you is there any light at the tunnel Uh, to end the second most important thing that this country faces, and that's the incarceration of children, the
5: first being global warming. In terms of funding of the National Guard, I mean, that is partly through the defense budget, but I think we need to restrict them from having domestic law enforcement, which they are restricted to do, and the president's attempts to do otherwise are blatantly unconstitutional and need to be uh, continually challenged even in, in the courts. Uh, his efforts to di- divert funding for border wall security violates so many uh, precedents. And, and I agree with you. The situation in terms of how we've been treating minors on the border is unconscionable. Uh, we have raised that before we fund uh, homeland security to make sure that there's far more accountability. And I know that's going to be high on the radar of the
3: Progressive Caucus and, frankly, the entire caucus in Congress. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Carol, you're on the air with Congressman Kahn. I want to say that I am with Lawrence Tribe on the idea that it's important that we have an impeachment
6: inquiry. And I also, by the way, understand that it's not just Nancy Pelosi who is holding this all up. I understand that there are a lot of people in the House who are against impeachment. But what I would like to hear you do for me is elaborate. The the reason behind why they believe, and I and I and I because I don't understand why they believe that impeaching Donald Trump would actually benefit him in some way. I mean, if you bring out all his criminality to the TV public, do you really think that that would benefit him? as opposed to hurting him in the next election. I mean, I can see him very easily saying, if you don't impeach me, it's because I'm innocent. I've done nothing wrong. Why are you persecuting me like this? I mean, that's how he thinks. But I would like to hear someone elaborate that argument for me as to how it would help him, and I'll hang up and listen for your answer.
5: Well, Carol, I think you raise an uh, excellent point, and the speaker agrees with you that we need to continue uh, to have aggressive investigations to expose the president's misconduct uh, to the American people. Uh, If you ask why are there some of my colleagues who are opposed to uh, impeachment, most of them tend to be in districts that uh, Donald Trump uh, carried. You know, I represent a very liberal district. It's Those votes aren't hard for me. But in districts which Trump carried, which there are about 31 Democrats, and then there are probably another 30 or 40 seats that are very close, those members will tell you that when they go home, they don't hear from their constituents about impeachment. They hear, what are you doing to get infrastructure? What are you doing to get prescription drugs lowered? Uh, and they want to focus on passing that and say, Donald Trump isn't signing any of the things that uh, we're trying to do to make your life better. And they believe that's a stronger argument. Now, I uh, I think they need to be convinced that we can't uh, just allow the misconduct to go unanswered. But uh, that is a candid uh, assessment of what the caucus uh, is the dynamics are, and, and and Speaker Pelosi has to pay attention not just uh, to people in the Bay Area, but to the entire caucus and see what she can get done.
3: Fred in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Congressman Kana.
5: Yes, hello, Congressman. Hello,
2: Tom. Um, I have a concern regarding the emoluments Clause of the Constitution. The last Supreme Court pardoned, I think it's Governor Edwards of Virginia, and he personally um, was given emoluments and gifts, not for his re-election campaign, but personally. And he was found not guilty by the last Supreme Court.
5: This is why the investigation and in making the case to the public is so important. When you have A documented case of a foreign leader uh, who is pushing for war in Iran, and then that foreign leader is staying many, many nights in the Trump hotel because he thinks that may curry the favor of the United States. That is wrong, and that will be appalling to most people who hear about it. Now, whether it's technically... Uh, legal or not under the emoluments clause of a very conservative Supreme Court isn't the point as much as getting that information out to the American people so folks understand how compromised some of our foreign policy is. And that has been the approach that many in the House have taken, which is we need to bring all of this evidence to light to expose in firsthand uh, and clearly uh, the potential corruption throughout the administration.
3: Charles in Novalaka Florida, you're on the air with with Congressman Connor.
1: um good afternoon, gentlemen um I got a question, and I definitely have a statement because my blood is boiling right now um just thinking my statement is this i um, just thinking about uh Joe Manchin, I think a year or two ago on Fox News saying uh, and, and and um saying it very proudly to the host on Fox News that he voted at least sixty percent of the times with Republicans. Now, there's this myth out there and I, I consider it a myth that you know, just because he don't stand up I mean just because he has those constituents over there that's among the conservatives, that he always has to vote with him. And I just think if we if we think about it, that's like one of the the one of the major things that's stopping our party from moving forward. And my question is this, and I just want you to know I just, I'm just asking you, Would Donald Trump keep um, playing with these tariffs and disturbing the market. I, just for example, I went to the grocery store this week; everything was a dollar more. And my question is, why do we have these um, these um, these tax breaks for these millionaires? Because if that's supposed to help boost the business, it's not doing it right now. And they had the biggest tax break ever. So please explain to me why the prices are going up. And we had this tax break, and it's just disturbed by just a little play by, um by Trump saying, "Well, I might raise taxes on mexico thank you, thank you for the time
5: well, Charles, I agree with uh, your point on the e- economics I mean the tariffs uh, hurt most uh, working class and middle class individuals uh, who are sensitive to prices i mean most of donald trump 's friends are the million millionaires uh, who he gives tax cuts to uh, may not notice if the price of groceries goes up or if the price of certain con- consumer goods go up uh, but folks who are uh, living paycheck to paycheck do notice and so he has uh, the way he's gone about doing blanket tariffs with no rationale uh, has uh, it, it, it created havoc now that doesn't mean that there's not smart ways to enforce uh, trade uh, and uh, you know, Tom Hartman and I were going back and forth uh, about that, and that they're not smart ways to to uh, to uh, uh, have labor enforcement uh, and punitive uh, enforcement, but not in the way arbitrary ways that uh, this president has done it, and certainly not when uh, he is at the same time giving tax cuts to uh, the very wealthy.
3: David in Miami, you're on the air with Congressman Rocom.
1: Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, During Trump campaign, claiming there's a 40%. Maybe we need to remind America he is wage safe, uh, that he deliberately imports immigrants to work in Mar-a-Lago rather than hire Americans. That would help.
3: Okay, David, your phone is breaking up really badly, but it it sounds like you were asking about, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to drop the call. It sounds like he was asking about. Trump hiring uh, undocumented workers at Mar-a-Lago and other places? Well,
5: David, if your point is that Trump is a hypocrite, uh, that's absolutely true. I mean, he has uh, hired people who were undocumented. He has uh, hired many uh, immigrants in his businesses. Uh, He conducted himself in a completely different way in his life uh, prior to uh, having to pander to a uh, a far-right base to win the nomination, but he's also shameless, uh, pointing out uh, his hypocrisy doesn't do much to someone
3: who lacks any shame. Mary in Las Vegas. Hey, Mary, you're on the air with Congressman Connor.
6: Good morning, gentlemen. I've asked this question before, and I'm repeating myself. Is there some reason William Barr cannot be referred to the state bar to have his law license pulled or suspended for lying to congress for deceiving the american people and also what is the outcome of of holding him in contempt i mean these people need to be fined or something else needs to be done like with the tax taxes and all of that thank you
5: mary i agree with you i mean william barr should be disbarred at the very minimum i mean he basically misrepresented the Mueller report to the United States Congress and to the American people. The you know President Clinton was disbarred uh, after uh, the whole Lewinsky hearing, and there's no doubt in my mind that uh, the misrepresentations that uh, Bill Barr made are materially uh, far worse. Uh, he uh, distorted a entire. Uh, public hearing and misled uh, the entire Congress and uh, the entire American public in what in was was supposed to be a uh, accurate legal summary so i I think someone should uh, file uh, uh, with the bar uh, a bar association that's not for Congress to do. Congress can hold him in contempt Congress can uh, try to compel him to hand over evidence uh, any citizen, as I understand it, can uh, or any organization can file for disciplinary proceedings for William Barr in front of
3: the bar. Chris, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you are on the air with Congressman Connor. Hey, uh, Congressman Connor and
4: and Tom, thank you for taking my phone call. Um, What I'm calling about is I'm I'm actually efforting uh, to see uh, if it's at all possible to get uh, an endorsement for our our fantastic Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse Oliver for um, uh, the U.S. Um, Senate race. Um, uh, you know, all due respect to Ben Ray Lujan, but um, Maggie Toulouse Oliver is is out there in front, uh, ahead of the game in regards to Medicare for All, um, and especially, even more importantly, the the, the New Green Deal. So, <clears throat> so what do you say, Congressman Khan? Can we get that endorsement?
5: Well, Chris, I'm sitting in my uh, office here in uh, the Capitol, so I can't explicitly uh, talk about uh, politics uh, under uh, the House ethics rules. But uh, uh, what I can say is that I'm happy to talk offline when I'm not in in the Capitol. And uh, I think that the Democratic Party should have a clear progressive vision for Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage, a free public college, uh, no uh, unconstitutional wars, a bold a Green New Deal climate plan, uh, and I think that that kind of bold progressive vision can win anywhere.
3: Pastor John in New Haven, Connecticut. You are on the air with Congressman Thomas.
7: Hi there, gentlemen. Thank you for getting me on. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for uh, the hearings you held last week, Congressman. Thank you for taking the TYT pledge, you and AOC. I'd like you to ask the uh, head of the Judiciary Committee, the Homeland Security, and um, Oversight Committee, uh, Congressman Cummings, to hold hearings, Homeland's done this already, to hold hearings with all of the secretary of states throughout the country about how they're protecting our vote, and then hold hearings throughout August with all of the board of electors throughout the country. We have to safeguard our vote and make sure that there's a paper trail, because you heard what um, Cohen said. He said that the president may decide not to step down and say that he won the election, you know, even if he loses it. So we've got to secure that vote and, and show the American public that it's secure. What do you think, sir?
5: Pastor John, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the chilling part of the Mueller report, which I know uh, many of the listeners here are aware of because uh, Tom has been reading it, the most chilling part is the systematic effort uh, that uh, was undertaken to hack into county board of elections and into secretary of state websites uh, to try to interfere with the vote. Uh, so we need, uh, in my view, uh, paper ballots uh, as, as confirmation. We need some basic uh, principles at a federal level that uh, can guide standards to, to what all localities must comply with to ensure uh, the safety of, of votes, uh, maybe uh, things that uh, can be verifiable Uh, through other uh, technical experts, but this should be a bipartisan issue. I'm happy to recommend we do more hearings. I think it has gotten lost in uh, all of the other terrible conduct uh, of the president with obstruction and in terms of the potential uh, influence that Russia had on the election. People are forgetting the danger our country is in to possible
3: interference with the actual vote count. Nicole, in Menlo Park, California, you're on air with Congressman Connor.
6: Hi, Congressman Connor. I'm one district over from you in Anna Eschews, and I used to be a big dollar donor, and then I self-radicalized on the internet
8: (laughs) became a progressive, also with the Tom Hartman Show, and I really want to support candidates who are not being... In the way that you primaried um, a sitting Democrat, how can I support, what orgs can I look for to support progressives who might be able to primary a sitting moderate Democrat?
5: Well, Nicole, I appreciate the call. And again, I can't get into too much politics explicitly, but what I can say is I think every candidate, every Democrat should be for competition for open primaries. And there are a number of organizations that are for open primaries and that have called for competition that's healthy for our uh, democracy and it'll move for uh, more progressive values. And I would just encourage you to look yourself online, I can't sort of plug political organizations, uh, and just look for organizations that stand for the principle of competitive primaries.
3: What should we be looking for as we go into this next week here?
5: Well, on the uh, front of holding this president accountable, which I know is on many of your uh, listeners' minds, uh, let's, I think people should look at the vote we're going to have on Bill Barr and Don McGahn, uh, look at uh, Nadler uh, taking uh, to court the, the um, request for the underlying evidence, uh, and then seeing uh, uh, how quickly the courts will resolve it. Uh, Also looking for the speaker's comments later this week about what exactly the strategy is uh, for being aggressive. All of us have been back in our districts, and she's going to
3: take the caucus's temperature and come out with a strategy. Congressman, you're doing such a great job. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you. Thanks for
5: always having
2: me on. It's a pleasure. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
0: Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cybercrimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home as collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com.
3: This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report. This is page 70. Uh, The subhead is Letter of Intent and Contacts to Russian Government. Between approximately October 13, 2015 and November 2, 2015, the Trump Organization, through its subsidiary Trump Acquisition LLC and the company IC Expert, completed a letter of intent, an LOI, for the Trump Moscow property. The LOI, signed by Trump for the Trump Organization and Rozov on behalf of IC Expert, was, quote, intended to facilitate further discussions in order to, quote, attempt to enter into a mutually acceptable agreement related to the Trump-branded project in Moscow. The LOI contemplated the development with residential, hotel, commercial, and office components and called for, quote, approximately 250 first-class luxury residential condominiums as well as one first-class luxury hotel consisting of approximately 15 floors and containing not fewer than 150 hotel rooms. For the residential and commercial portions of the project, the Trump Organization would receive between 1% and 5% of all condominium sales, plus 3% of all revenue and rental and other revenue. For the project's hotel portion, the Trump Organization would receive a base fee of 3% of gross operating revenues for the first five years, and 4% thereafter, plus a separate incentive fee of 20% of operating profit. Under the LOI, the Trump Organization would also receive a $4 million upfront fee prior to groundbreaking. Under these terms, the Trump Organization stood to earn substantial sums over the lifetime of the project without assuming significant liabilities or financing commitments. On November 3rd, 2015, the day after the Trump Organization transmitted the LOI, Sater emailed Cohen suggesting that the Trump Moscow project could be used to increase candidate Trump's chances uh, at being elected, writing, quote, buddy, our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this. I will manage the process. Michael, Putin gets on stage with Donald for a ribbon cutting for Moscow, for Trump Moscow, and Donald owns the Republican nomination and possibly beats Hillary and our boy is in. We will manage this process better than anyone. You and I will get Donald and Vladimir on a stage together very shortly. That is the game changer. Later that day, Sater followed up Donald doesn't stare down. He negotiates and understands the economic issues, and Putin only wants to deal with a pragmatic leader, and a successful businessman is a good candidate for someone who knows how to negotiate. Business, politics, whatever it is, it's all the same for someone who knows how to deal. Page 72. I can think, this is still from the letter from Peter, uh, from Felix Sater, I think I can get Putin to say that at that at the Trump Moscow press conference. If he says that, that we own this election, America's most difficult adversary agreeing that Donald Trump is a good guy to negotiate, we can own this election. Michael, my next steps are very sensitive with Putin's very, very close people. We can pull this off. Michael, let's go. Two boys from Brooklyn getting a USA president elected. This is really good stuff. According to, end of quote, according to Cohen, he did not consider the political import of the Trump-Moscow project to the 2016 U.S. presidential election at the time. Cohen also did not recall candidate Trump or anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign discussing the political implications of the Trump-Moscow project with him. However, Cohen recalled conversations with Trump in which the candidate suggested that his campaign would be a significant infomercial for Trump-branded properties. sub-item two, post-LOI contacts with individuals in Russia. Given the size of the Trump-Moscow project, Sater and Cohen believed the project required approval, whether expressed or implied, from the Russian national government, including from the presidential administration of Russia. Sater stated that he therefore began to contact the presidential administration through another Russian business contact. In early negotiations with the Trump Organization, Sater had alluded to the need for government approval and his attempts to set up meetings with the Russian officials. On October 12, 2015, for example, Sater wrote to Cohen that, quote, all we need is Putin on board and we are golden, and that a meeting with Putin and top deputies is tentatively set for 14 October. Uh, some of the text here has been deleted by Bob Barr. This meeting was being coordinated by associates in Russia, and he had no direct interaction with Russian government. Uh, approximately a month later, that was not referring to Michael Cohen, by the way, it was referring to whatever was deleted. Approximately a month later, after the LOI had been signed, Lena Erchova, Emailed Ivanka Trump on behalf of Erchova's then husband Dmitry Klokov to offer Klokov's assistance to the Trump campaign. Klokov was at that time director of external communications for PJSC Federal Grid Company of Unified Energy System, a large Russian electricity transmission company, and had been previously employed as an aide and press secretary to Russia's energy minister. Ivanka Trump forwarded the email to Cohen. He told the office that after receiving this inquiry, he had conducted an internet search for Klokov's name and concluded incorrectly that Klokov was a former Olympic weightlifter. Between November 18 and 19, 2015, Klokov and Cohen had at least one telephone call and exchanged several emails. Describing themselves in emails to Cohen as a trusted person who could offer the campaign political strategy and synergy on a government level, Klokov recommended that Cohen traveled to Russia to speak with him and an unidentified intermediary. Klokov said that those conversations could facilitate a later meeting in Russia between the candidate and an individual Klokov described as our person of interest. In an email to the office, Erchova later identified the person of interest as Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's the Mueller Report. On the line with us is uh, Lila Connors. Lila is the, uh, the producer director of the new HBO film Ice on Fire, produced and narrated by Leo DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio. Tree Media is her company. She's the president of Tree Media, treemedia.com. And uh, it's going to be on HBO tomorrow night. And uh, you can tweet her at Lila Connors or at Tree Media Group. Lila, welcome to the program. Welcome back to the program. It's, It's so nice to have you with us. Tell us about the movie and tell us how people can watch it on HBO and when. And this is just a brilliant piece of filmmaking, by the way, I have to add.
8: Thank you, Tom. Yes, it's premiering June 11th on HBO at 8 p.m. And HBO is then going to put it in front of their paywall for a week or so, uh, starting June 12th. So we're very excited about that so everyone can see the film. You have collaborated with us on this. It is a film about two stories, two accelerating stories. One about the acceleration of climate disruption, and the other, the human response to climate disruption, which is human innovation, human solutions to climate, which is not tech-based only. In fact, primarily it's working with nature, working with natural systems to support those systems so we can draw carbon down out of the atmosphere and take all the carbon that we've thrown up into the sky over the last 150 years, put it back into the ground where it belongs, and proceed forward with renewable energy. So basically, Ice on Fire is about these two stories. One about The acceleration of the melting arctic and then the exposition of the methane threat as well as the acceleration of human response to address the problem
3: tell us what kind of a future the world is looking at if we don't do something soon
8: so as many scientists have warned us if we do not reverse business as usual We will continue to warm the atmosphere, and the ice is going to melt. Um, As Jim White says in the University of Colorado in our film, we are headed for an ice-free world if we don't reverse climate change. And that is not just about rising seas, which is horrific and terrible, but what it also creates is what we call tipping points, where we accelerate warming even further. So if we do not reverse course if we don't stop burning fossil fuels we will enter into an era where warming accelerates beyond the capacity for the web of life to support us and this has happened as you know five times in the past in the distant past and the permanent mass extinction and other extinctions the TETM extinction when carbon reaches a certain level in the atmosphere it causes the web of life to collapse for various reasons and we go through that the good news is that we don't have to get to that point we actually do have the knowledge and the tools to reverse this problem The big point is that we have to massively scale up. You know, just like we did during World War II with the climate emergency, we absolutely need to implement all of our solutions simultaneously to pull us away from the brink that we've put
3: ourselves on. Describe the spectrum of solutions that we see in the movie.
8: Well, the good news is that the Earth cycles carbon already. So if we continue to chop down trees and poison the ocean, then and poison the soil, The earth can't help us. So what we're learning is that soil has three or four times more carbon in it than what we have in the sky. So organic soils can pull carbon down. Biochar can help sequester carbon in the soil. We also know that trees can pull carbon out of the sky. We also know that kelp is a very powerful plant, the most powerful plant in the world. Um, I've been told that if we plant kelp in 9% of global waters, we can reverse 50% of our emissions. So the Earth is working with us. We just have to work alongside nature and not against it. What's also fascinating is that we, some engineers in Switzerland, have invented a very small director capture machine that can actually pull carbon out of the sky and turn it into a rock in two hours using geothermal energy. So it's on renewable energy and can actually reverse what we've done. Uh, Again, nature is more powerful in terms of the scale at this present moment, but the machines can certainly help and they're gonna become more efficient over time. We also profiled um, a tidal machine in Scotland uh, and talked about solar and wind. And it's very, very clear right now that solar, in many cases, is cheaper than fossil fuels over the long run. And so with wind and solar and storage, we can power the world. So really, um, fossil fuels, really should we should move away from that. And we know how hard it is because there's been trillions of dollars invested in fossil fuels. That said, we need to invest in the future of this planet. That is more important.
3: What I really love about the movie is, A, it's the kind of movie that you could show to anybody. It's not like insiders talking to insiders. In fact, I would love to show it to people who are fossil fuel deniers. I was at a... Right wing talk radio or a talk radio conference uh, on Friday, and I was talking to a bunch of right wingers and saying, You really ought to check this out. But B, it both kind of scares the hell out of you and gives you extraordinary hope. Lila, thanks so much for being with us. The movie again can be seen when and where? Real quick Ice on
8: Fire, HBO, June 11th, and then in front of their paywall after that for a week or so. Thank you, everybody.
3: Thank you. Lila Connors, the president of Tree Media, director of this new HBO film, Ice on Fire, produced and narrated by Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm in it, too, so <laughs> say hi. You do it Thanks right so now. much for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. So get out there, get active, tag, your it. We'll you You've been
2: listening to TV. Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.